0: But I ain't a conspiracy theory, I'm real, and I'm standing right here, and I know what the
1: truth is. I knocked the shit out of this Chinese virus after about a week.
2: When we talk about magmatic, we are talking about satanism, necromancy, alchemy, witchcraft, worship Satan, and the worship of Satan, after the worship of dark forces.
0: Welcome to the Wet Wired Podcast, Episode 5, 2021 Shakes Hands with the Firing Squad. I'm Sean Andis, And I'm Julian Paul
1: Butt. How's it going, Jules? It's going phenomenally. Wrapping up this year quite well.
0: This has been a great year, I think, for everybody. I think we're all going to look back on this year, and we're going to think that you know, twenty twenty one. That was the high water mark. <laughs> that was when that was when everybody hit their stride, and we've really seen the
1: best out of everyone. You know that the diets were working, and uh, the new fitness program uh, that they promised at the beginning of ventilators,
0: the year, right? They, that they, was they, ventilators. Huh? That's the fitness program. Ventilators. <laughs> I, I think it really. It's taken a pandemic to really bring out the best in everyone. I mean, I've never felt a time in my life where our nation has, it just feels
1: so united. We've excelled in terms of our ability to not only come together, but have such a reasonable discourse. And uh, besides all of that, it just feels like there's a sense of community.
0: Yeah, I I think, I really think that the, uh, like all those politicians were right in the in the sixties and the seventies about the Cold War, that you really—it's amazing what happens when you have a common enemy. <laughs> so this is our first Christmas episode. Hopefully, it's not our last Christmas episode. <laughs> um, and it's not really a Christmas episode. I, I like to think of this more. Of the, this is just a New Year's episode.
1: I think what you meant to say is Festivus.
0: Yeah. I actually, I I think that I meant to say winter solstice or, or maybe Saturnalia. Saturnalia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I actually, I I went to a pagan festival the other day. Get the fuck out! I mean, festivals of it was a it was a gathering. Uh, so how many people were involved in the orgy? On my street, there was a Wiccan gathering bringing in the new year. It happened yesterday on, on the winter solstice. It was all about the longest night of the year and people burned things. And <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really something. This was unexpected from the crowd of my neighbors along this very, very wealthy street that I have found myself living on. It was, uh it was really surprising. It was absolutely pagan, which is right up my alley. That's, that's my thing entirely. I love that stuff. I've, I've, I've eaten that stuff up for years and years and years. Hey, you're preaching to the choir, well, so to speak. Yeah, well, pagans can have choirs. <laughs> <laughs> Jules has had the idea of doing a little bit of, a, of an introduction of us and maybe a little background on who we are and some things that people might be interested in. I don't know. I don't know, Jules. What do you have in mind?
1: Well, I thought that
0: we might begin with the origin story. Of this podcast, <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. It basically has to do with a white guy, me, who thought that that's what was missing in the in the podcast verse was another uh, another Gen X straight white male voice commenting on all the problems in our society. So I, I decided to just pull the trigger on that one, so to speak. In an
1: era of mass shootings, maybe I shouldn't use words like that anymore. <laughs> But there's more. I, I I believe we did add some diversity to the podcast. Well,
0: you, you're 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 the diverse element here, b- being another white male who is a millennial. So we we have that demographic all tied up. I mean, how much more
1: diversity do you need? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Granted, I'm I'm queer. You know, that's just it happened when I moved to Seattle. So it, you 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 get your your Seattle uh, residency, and then you become queer. So it, they they just kind of go together.
0: Right. The the the, the, the pink uh, membership card goes right next to the red membership card,
1: <laughs> or the the rainbow colored membership card. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even count. It just comes with your zip code
0: all the mail has has that has that postal code <laughs> on a more serious note the the reason that i thought of doing this podcast was that i i really wanted to have a more organized sort of way of doing research and learning about things that i was already interested in really the, i'm not really spending any time we haven't spent any time covering any topics that we weren't already interested in at least At least uh, the the type of topics, the details are always going to change because the news changes and events in the world change. What I was really trying to do is justify all of the reading and collecting of sources that I was doing anyway. It seemed like a more focused way of doing all that work.
1: While I think that our description of the podcast has become more refined, I think there's still a limited degree of vagary of our podcasts.
0: Of what the hell we're doing on a what regular basis. Like, it, it, the, Is it the is there a pitch? theme somewhere at some point
1: that we will in some accidental way stumble across? I attempted the an elevator pitch twice today, and <sighs> it was it <laughs> was a Trump's tower worth of an elevator ride, and on top of it, I referenced several things that people had never heard of, <laughs> so it wasn't a very good fucking elevator pitch. <laughs> well you know, actually
0: that's the thing that I, I constantly wrestle with when it comes to this the topics that we cover in this podcast. I I read all this stuff all the time. So I'm deep in it. Some of the things are new to me, but the like I said a minute ago, the general idea of this sort of like these sort of fringe topics is not new. So most of these topics, I might know something about, but I don't necessarily know a great, de- a great deal about them. You know, For example, a couple of weeks ago, we released an episode about Doja Palooza, and in that episode, or in researching that episode, I came across this whole movement of seasteaders and the billionaires that are funding them. I didn't know anything about that, but it is exactly my line. That's exactly the kind of thing that I want to know more about. The fact that I didn't know about it before was just an accident. This podcast gives me a reason to look at those things, to think about those things. And I suppose this all ties together into sort of a broader topic of these relatively fringe movements or small incidents, maybe, that don't seem like they're incredibly important. They don't really move the needle when it comes to the the 24-hour news cycle. But at the same time, there are a significant number of people in terms of tens of thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands that are subscribing to this kind of thinking that are just out in the world doing things, influencing the world that we live in in ways that we don't necessarily see. When we start learning about these relatively unimportant seeming stories, we can start seeing these themes, that these are incidental examples of a much broader more pervasive way of thinking about the world a way of relating to the world in the beginning of the 21st century for example the crypto themed events have everything to do with this completely almost impenetrable fascination that a huge number of people have with nfts i don't get it it seems crazy i've worked in digital whatever internet whatever for over a decade now and a file is a file is a file. You can make an infinite number of copies of an image, and they are fundamentally equal to one another. They contain exactly the same amount of data configured in exactly the same way. Adding some sort of a blockchain timestamp on them does not in some way make one inherently more valuable than another. But here we are, people selling NFTs for millions of dollars. This
1: same group of people are... The it's really part of a cultish attitude. Well,
0: and that's, that's, that's a thematic element that we keep hitting is cult-type stuff, which is another you know it's an, it's another hobby horse of mine, is trying to understand how the hell somebody would decide to go move to a compound somewhere and slowly acclimate themselves to drinking poison Kool-Aid. Yeah. I don't know how that works necessarily, and I want to. I want to understand that. And maybe other people are interested in trying to understand it, too. We typically on this show we don't come with a bag full of answers to the questions about the world that we have. We just try to learn as much as we can about it. And in the process, we hopefully are creating something interesting for other people to listen to. I I got sidetracked it's a little been while incredible. ago. I got sidetracked a little while ago in the my description of all this. I started off talking about the uh or about to comment on what you had just said, mentioning a couple of topics that the person you were talking to didn't know anything about. That has actually been kind of a hang-up that I've had about the topics that we cover, especially trying to come up with some kind of a timely release schedule. Sorry, everybody, it's all over the map or all over the calendar. (laughs) We record episodes, and I edit them as fast as I can, and this is also a learning-as-you-go process for me. The timeliness of releasing these episodes is something that I'm very mindful of. We record an episode and something is pretty fresh in the news. And by the time I get finished editing it, it's already a couple of weeks old or at least two weeks old. That's been a hang up for me. But I've realized that I've built in this assumption that people actually pay attention to the news. So maybe our listeners (laughs) don't or at least don't as much as I do. Likewise, I have a a very similar kind of hang-up regarding how much these topics have already been covered. But again, there's a very subjective bias that I'm putting into that, because I'm reading about this stuff all the time. I'm seeing all the coverage about it from these very disparate Little Red sources. It's very easy for me to make the assumption that everybody else knows all about it already, so why should I even release this episode?
1: To you, it seems
0: ubiquitous, whatever it is. The reality is I've talked about some of these things a number of times to people over the past few weeks that I've, you know, a number of these things that I've learned about. I've talked about them to a number of people over the past few weeks and nobody
1: knew anything about it. It was all brand new. You have to explain the context, or at least in my experience, I have to explain the context of the thing that I'm explaining to them in such an excited way where I'm explaining to my, my friend or whomever, yeah, we did this episode on Max Weber, and then they say, oh, who's that? And then and then there's this follow-up series of, of question-and-answer things in this discussion. Before I can even get to the thing that I'm so excited to discuss, that we did an episode about this, a whole episode, I have to explain why they should give a shit about this person in the first place. A pitch that I have said that really strikes people... I see their eyes open up pretty wide when I say this, because it's true. When you hear the term work ethic, whether you realize it or not, that term comes from this book from Max Weber in 1905. The far-reaching consequences of a single book, obviously there's much more to it than just one book, but to have this thing that is so ubiquitous and all around us, and not realize the connections or this origin, which I think is something like the most cited work in sociology or some superlative like that is pretty remarkable. In this conversation, it really reveals to me when I'm talking with somebody about our podcast that something that is all around us is also so incredibly obscure.
0: Right, that's something that is also motivating me to try to explain these things that I'm noticing are everywhere. And influence everything, but generally go unnoticed by most people. It seems like, you know, why would we start off this podcast where we've been talking about seasetters and cults? Why would we start all of this off with a two part episode about a German sociologist that wrote a book over a hundred years ago? <laughs> what? Yeah. That's not what we're doing. In general, there are probably more episodes coming down that are going to be about people and ideas. There are a couple of things that I've been thinking about recently that I, I'd like to explore more, and because they have such an explanatory power. But we chose this this particular episode, talking about Max Weber and about Taylor, because they had such a strong impact on everything we're we're seeing around us right now. We just did an episode a couple of weeks ago where we talked about at least in passing, what everybody's calling the great resignation, or some people are calling the great reshuffle now. What does that all mean? We get the news story, we hear the numbers about people quitting their jobs, we hear all of the political discourse about why they're quitting their jobs. You can hear from a far left kind of position that it has to do with class struggle and disenfranchisement of labor, and then you hear from the far right end that it has to do with people are just being too lazy to work, they don't want to do their jobs anymore, and they're just going to go live off of unemployment because the government passed out all of these extraordinary unemployment benefits. Neither of those are the answer. Yeah, there's so much more complexity to it. Exactly. Neither of those politicized models explains it. And I'm not trying to explain it either. But I acknowledge that nobody else, when they pass off
1: their descriptions as explanations... I'm acknowledging that they're not explaining it either. They're shoehorns into... I wouldn't even describe ideologies. Typically, they're just shoehorns into talking points that masquerade as ideologies. Yeah, it's not
0: not even in-depth enough to be considered an ideology. Keep talking about lazy workers. Keep talking about ungrateful. Keep talking about exploiting the system which is just a reconfiguration of the 1980s welfare queen. There there's no there's nothing new here. It's the same it's the same material that's just been reconfigured
1: for a 2021 audience. I think that the the scriptwriters have been on strike <laughs> for a long time and that's why we're seeing this all right. <laughs> Cuz
0: nothing is real. It's all the matrix. Uh, make sure you take the red pill. <laughs> And then everything will be fine. We're going to have ten days of darkness. Um, What else? (laughs) Some other... Uh,
1: The mole people. The mole people. people.
0: Yeah, because all of that... Honestly, I have a lot of sympathy for the people who retreat into those fantasies. Because the reality is absolutely fucking ridiculous. It's so absurd. We might as well retreat into some sort of H.P. Lovecraft story version of the world or some sort of journey into the center of the earth kind of way of understanding reality. Written by
1: a guy who has a pretty cool yeah, first yeah, name. If I, I do want to name me. him
0: because we actually talked about him a couple of episodes
1: ago because you can't help yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'll even point out that I know that I bring him up a lot and I will continue to bring him up a lot. Oh my but, god, uh, Dedeborn is coming. <laughs> <laughs> ah shit. Society of the spectacle, everybody. You, you, of course. Where reality becomes the spectacle and the spectacle then becomes reality, and it creates such a feedback loop that the distinction between reality itself is completely lost. It becomes the nature of our perception of how things are and how things work—that the fiction becomes more real than what we perceive as reality. Absolutely,
0: people are people are pissed off because they're out of hot pockets at the grocery stores. <laughs> that's how they relate to the supply chain disruptions that are caused by all kinds of different problems. I mean, that's one of the things that you know we had on our on our list to you know maybe get to in you know, in this conversation for this episode. They're not concerned about global supply chain problems. They're not concerned about conflicts going on in Eastern Europe and how it affects natural gas prices for the, Europe, for the European continent. They're concerned because the potato patties are gone. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're concerned because gas goes up 10 cents a gallon. They don't want to try to figure out why gas goes up 10
1: cents a gallon. They just want to blame whoever the president is. Listen, Biden is clearly responsible for the increase in price of my dinosaur-shaped chicken McNuggets.
0: <laughs> That's a criticism that can be landed on progressives and MAGA Republicans. That do- It doesn't require you to be an affiliate of a political party to be to be guilty of just deciding to blame whatever it is you think is a problem on whoever the guy in office happens to be.
1: Or your favorite villain.
0: Nobody's talking about Mitch McConnell anymore because the guy doesn't really have any power. Well, he has power to rally the Republican caucus in the Senate, but he doesn't have enough votes in in order to be able to stop anything other than the things that wouldn't have passed anyway. That actually brings me to something that came up recently. David Axelrod, who was part of the Obama administration, was, made a comment the other day about, about the filibuster and how it wouldn't change anything if we got rid of it. And he said when Obama – I forget which term he was talking about, but he was talking about one of Obama's terms. And he was saying that we had 62 votes and we still couldn't pass things. Oh, what a cringe moment that is. To say that and to not hear the subtext in your own statement – that you just, you're ineffectual. You, you can't get anything done regardless of it. And so all of this bickering back and forth about votes is just it's just a distraction from everybody's time. It is really, it really is a part of the spectacle. I'm not making fun of Bor because I think he, he is incredibly important. It,
1: the, the joke is how often I bring him up. The, the joke is how often you bring <laughs> him up. But,
0: the, but what's not a joke or what is a joke, depending on how you want to relate to reality, is that... It's all true. It's happening all the time. We're all, we're all in it. Even the people who think they're not in it, they're still in it in a different way. I'm in it. Jules, you're in it. We're all in it. No, I'm not. We're all caught up in it. See, that's when it's really bad. The people who don't think they're in it, those are the ones that are really fucked. We're, we're all caught up in, in this just unending stream of distractions. We can't think about anything complicated anymore. We can't think about why oil prices go up and down. We just see the price of the pump, and that's it. We're done. And we blame whoever's in charge. If our, if our favorite people don't get to pass the, like their favorite legislation, which is now my favorite legislation, then it's because of this bad guy over here. Like you said, Jules, our favorite villain. Everything has become so completely simplified that it no longer has any kind of bearing to reality whatsoever. It's all totally detached. There's
1: no connected connectivity between even the streams of, th- well, well, theory is an exaggeration. Just thoughts, just the con- connectivity between basic ideas of the components of the world around us. There's no connection whatsoever. You can have a number of things that have such an unbelievably obvious uh, for with with. I I think it's obvious anyways, Uh, a few moments of consideration, huge contradiction, total paradox Mm -hmm. between each other. And prior to it becoming the football passed between whoever the teams of of politics or culture or society happen to be, it was not even on the radar of huge segments of the population. Mm -hmm. And the moment that it is the topic of the day the moment that that happens, then suddenly there's very uh, clear lines drawn in the sand. And these clear lines are filled with all the passion and fervor of somebody who has been a diehard frothing at the mouth with bayonet in hand, ready to fight for this ideal, and has been fighting in a civil war for just as many years. That same zeal and passion, as if that that's with... A kid, It was just last week that you were introduced to the idea at all, and you'd heard the term for the first time. Yeah. That is this extraordinary amount of superficiality, but with all the zeal of the greatest depth and profundity that we can imagine. Well, yeah, the the greatest depth and profundity that they can imagine.
2: (laughs)
0: All right. (laughs) (laughs) This is what we're doing. We're talking about these things. We see these things and we're frustrated by them. I find myself incredibly frustrated at everything that I'm looking at when I see these stories and I think, what is going to make any of this change? That's my my consistent thought. What could possibly budge any of these things so that we actually can do something serious? We can tackle serious concerns like poverty, homelessness, malnutrition and income inequality that we can actually... And warfare. And warfare. What can we do so that we can create a world that is worth living in? Not just worth living in if you're a multimillionaire or a billionaire and you have enough money to buy your own rocket. That's not a world that's for everybody. That's just a world for a few people and everybody else is just around to make sure that they can have the life that they've always wanted. I don't know what's going to bring about that transformation in people's minds. I don't know if it's possible. It doesn't seem likely. A global pandemic
1: that has killed millions of people didn't do it. And that has disrupted global economies in an un, in a way that was unimaginable previously. Yeah, it, it, that didn't do it.
0: But why would it? Why, why would anybody expect that it would? World War II didn't do it either. So what does that leave us? Obviously... If anything, World War II accelerated it. It really accelerated. A lot of what we see right now is the product of of seeds that were planted just after World War II ended. You know, including our rocket program. And if you
1: listen to our (laughs) Dogecoin episode...
0: (laughs) You can hear all about that in the Dogecoin episode.
1: Well, on that note, maybe we could say a brief couple of sentences about where you and I personally are coming from maybe give the audience a sense of I actually think maybe not after all that I think that uh-huh. that
0: I, I I think I prefer a uh, a show don't tell approach there
1: I you know I I think I think you might be yeah. right and and
0: uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I don't know if we're gonna, I'm gonna leave all this in and just make the remark that nobody really should give a shit about what books I like to read or the sci-fi authors that I enjoy reading They probably shouldn't care who my favorite painters
1: are uh, or what kind of music I like. However, they should definitely subscribe to my blog where I have all of my favorite films. He's lying. (laughs) He's never written anything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a blog with all your favorite films? No, of course not. They're all Wes Anderson for... Anybody who's been paying attention already knows that they're all Wes Anderson. You might
1: throw some Woody <laughs> Allen in there. He doesn't care about sex crimes. Well, there's only one Woody Allen film that I know of that I absolutely love. <laughs> Midnight in Paris, of course. <laughs> keeping keeping on brand. Do you want to talk about the highlights of our favorite year? Yeah, I think we should. If anybody
0: does want uh, any sci-fi book recommendations, just tweet at me. Yeah, or tell me yours. That's even better. Give me your book recommendations. I'd love to see what other people are reading. I'd love to come across something new. So, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. The podcast is at WetWiredPod, and I'm at Sean Ondas. I would love to hear what
1: everybody is reading. Uh, I could definitely use some sci-fi recommendations. And in the same respect, if you want to send book recommendations to me, I probably won't read them. But I might... He doesn't read. Though my favorite John... He doesn't read. I... I, um... Something that
0: everybody should know about this podcast is that once a week or so, I unlock Jules' cage and I roll him out from on his cart, <laughs> and he I put his I roll his cart in front of a microphone. I put a box of Franzia
1: in front of him, and then we record a show. <laughs> well, it, uh, it is a wine inspired beverage, and uh, for that at least, it's worth something. He actually is drinking Franzia right now. Anybody. You shut your whore mouth.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, so
0: Jules, what are the highlights of 2021? Uh,
1: by the way, before I get to the highlights, I want to point out uh, that my soon-to-be very updated Twitter handle is at Julian Hooligan, spelled however you think it's. Yeah, spelled. You, you can find his handle in the uh, the the Wet Pod bio too. We opened the year, uh, we we cracked the year open with a great narrative that kicked off exactly a kind of year that would sustain for the rest of it.
0: What a way to start, right? How could you start a year like that? Well, let's let's turn that around the other direction. What sort of year could anybody reasonably expect after it started like that? One, (laughs) it is hard to top. There is no second act that can stand up to a riot at the Capitol building. Like literally breaking into the Capitol building to stop the vote. You can't you can't and top that.
1: To stop the vote in order to defend democracy. It's like a maga flash mob. Oh, flash mobs were so fun right? 10 years exactly. ago. Exactly, right?
0: Like 10 years ago a flash mob. That's what this was.
1: But it was mostly dancing.
0: <laughs> everybody, sh- everybody showed up. Nobody really, except at a flash mob. People know what they're doing; they do it on purpose. The only people that are confused are everybody that's watching the mob happen. In this, in, in, in the case of the riot, <laughs> everyone was confused. Nobody knew what was going on, and you could watch them. They they break into the building. They bash up through windows. They're beating police officers with fire extinguishers, and then they get into the viewing hall with all these paintings and they managed to keep themselves narrowly walking between two velvet ropes. What <laughs> <laughs> only to take a bunch of selfies in Nancy Pelosi's office and live stream while they smoke joints and the rotunda, everything that we've seen the rest of the year has all been
1: a descending from that climax that we had right there in the first week. It was right at the Capitol, and on one end of the spectrum, we have it being described as an insurrection to overturn oh, yeah, the, the government. Yeah, the narratives about this stuff has been... Fa- they have been awesome. Holy sh... Patriots like, on it, one end, no,
0: insurrectionists on the other end. It, it, it wasn't an... In- it, it was a riot of
1: ridiculous people.
0: that That's what it, we This had. was not an insurrection. Even the people who are most capable of... And being involved in an insurrection, we're not participating in an insurrection at that point. This whole episode is about tying this year up in a bow, which means that we're going to try to add a little bit of closure to the events of the year as best we can. One of the groups that was present at the Capitol building, the Oath Keepers, on December 21, a federal judge ruled that 17 members of the Oath Keepers that are being brought up on charges for participating in the January 6th riot can, in fact, be charged with obstructing an official proceeding. This is the charge that has been levied against a number of the people who have been convicted so far, because it's the one that's most likely to stick, basically. Prosecutors, are they, they play a numbers game, a percentages game, about what charges they're going to use, because they want to make sure that they're actually going to get a conviction. At, at least they want yeah. to have the best chance of getting a conviction. This one has, so far, worked out pretty well. But the attorneys for the Oath Keepers sued on the grounds that the the charge was vague. It doesn't define in a precise sort of fashion what a, quote, official proceeding is. I think that counting the electoral votes probably could be considered an official proceeding for the U.S. government. It sounds pretty official. It sounds official. pretty official, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Counting the votes of a presidential election sounds fairly official. So, yes, they they <laughs> managed to lose that particular objection. So that means that they will face trial shortly. The Oath Keepers are among the very small group of attendees of the January 6th riot that could be considered capable of participating in an actual insurrection. We might hear more from these guys. They've been steadily increasing their activity since 2014 when they showed up at the... Uh, the Bundy Ranch standoff with the BLM, that would be the the Bureau of Land Management, not Black Lives Matter, where the BLM wanted to restrict the Bundys from grazing on government land. The Oath Keepers showed up with loaded rifles to stop the BLM from executing their orders. This is a group that we really could hear more from, but even they weren't armed at the Capitol. They were dressed in military-style yeah. gear— they had helmets on, they had radios, they were walking in some sort of a single-file line like you were heading out of school on a fire drill. Very organized. <laughs> and those are yeah. the guys that had the hands on one another's shoulders as they were walking through the crowd so that they don't lose each other. Basically the same tactic that 16-year-old girls use at a concert. Well, you know,
1: I, for cos- for cosplay, it wasn't too bad. <laughs>
0: This group of 17 is not the first group of Oath Keepers that is facing charges. Even they weren't doing anything overtly violent. They didn't show up armed. They were among the most restrained of the group, I believe. I could be wrong about that, but I think I'm right. They didn't have sidearms. They didn't (laughs) have rifles when they entered the Capitol building. This was not an insurrection. This wasn't
1: a revolt. And there was nothing to take over, exactly. Well, It's it's not like... It's not like that. Well, when I say there's nothing to take over, what I what I mean to say is there was no replacement government ready to go. Right. Should anything have now, happened? Now, I I don't. I actually don't like that particular defense so much about
0: the about the riot that happened at the Capitol building. That it wasn't an insurrection because they didn't have any sort of after plan. You know, there was no after party scheduled as far as they were concerned. <laughs> I don't think that they sh- that anyone should get off the hook necessarily because they are bad planners. I totally agree. I totally agree. Just because this this wasn't a an organized coup doesn't mean that they didn't have coup in their hearts when they ran into the building. They may have. People sure. may have. That's
1: that's a fair assessment.
0: This is a case by case, individual kind of basis. But as a whole, I think that the action, we just can't call this an insurrection. That is just hyping it up. That's just getting these, I mean, really, like New York City progressives all fired up so that they can go complain about it at their next cocktail party. That's really, that's the audience for this sort of thing. This is an East Coast, West Coast sort of elite kind of audience. They hear insurrection over and over and over again. And that gets them, that gets their wallets pried open so that they donate to candidates. That's what's going on there. Yeah, this is not for the rest of us in this country that actually have to fucking live here,
1: <laughs> that have
0: to spend our day to day lives living in this nation. Those messages are not
1: for us. Well, what's what were some of the things that we did cover a little bit of this in previous pods? We did. We we talked what, about the we the, talked
0: about Mark Meadows, and the uh, the will he or won't he card that he's been playing with the house select committee on january 6th he showed up and then he wouldn't show up then he sent documents then he wouldn't show up again and now he's going to show up again i guess meadows as trump's chief of staff has valuable testimony that he can deliver to the committee unless he decides to just plead the fifth like most of the other people have except for uh ali alexander who was one of the primary organizers of the Stop the Steal rally that day that turned into the riot. He has just sung just like a beautiful, beautiful, (laughs) beautiful bird. (laughs) He just dished. And I think that's probably because all of his benefactors have ditched him. So he probably can't afford the same sort of legal defense as somebody like Mark Meadows can. Or Steve Bannon or Mike Flynn Mike Flynn's approach that, you know, the QAnon general, Mike Flynn, he decided to play coy with the committee and is suing on the grounds that the House Select Committee uh, somehow or the House Select Committee's subpoena for his documents, phone records and testimony somehow violates his rights. And also, I didn't add this in my notes, but some of the grounds for that for that lawsuit that his attorneys have filed uh, are also about the legitimacy of the committee to call him as a witness or compel him as a witness in the first place. And so somehow (laughs) this house select committee, as far as Flynn's lawyers are concerned, are not really a committee because they didn't do something right. So we'll, we'll we'll see if he ends up getting charged with contempt like, uh, like Mark Meadows has Uh, Steve Bannon also charged with contempt he uh his uh his case has been referred to the justice department and he is likely to be he is scheduled for some time actually the schedule has happened he actually is scheduled i think for june or july in 2022 to appear at trial for comp for contempt for failing to appear in front of the committee so we'll see if he appears at his trial it's,
1: it's on his google calendar yeah, it's on his google calendar he'll
0: get a notification We'll we'll see if that actually works out i i, I don't think it will i think that Something will happen, a deal will be struck behind the scenes, and we'll hear about it a few days later at some point in the next months. And all of this is happening while the true ringleaders, really Trump and potentially a couple of other people, are happily just living their lives. No problems at all. They're just, everything's great. Trump's going to rallies. People are booing him when he tries to take credit for the vaccines. It's awesome. He told it, he he had a he had an onstage interview with Bill O'Reilly of all people, and mentioned is that guy still alive? He he was just onstage with Trump, and he uh, he mentioned that he had received the booster and tried to uh, change the narrative about the vaccine so he could still manage to take credit for all of their success, and the crowd booed him. <laughs> so yeah, so I think that's what we're gonna see here. I mean, he is such a craven. Uh, public figure, he can't tolerate that sort of booing. We're going to see Trump backpedal on the vaccines entirely. He's going to probably just start echoing the common sentiment of his uh, among his supporters that they're killing babies, and you know more people are dying from the vaccine than die from COVID, and all the kinds of fear mongering that you're hearing out of Newsmax and OAN.
1: Oh, absolutely. Which brings us you know, to
0: your note- topic. The vaccine rollout, (laughs) which, seriously, has not been that bad. It could be a whole hell of a lot better if it wasn't for the politicization. Is that right? Politicization? That is right. Politicization. That's the word. It could be a whole hell of a lot better if it wasn't for the politicization of of the vaccine overall. But... There are places in the U.S. that are over 80% vaccinated, like Massachusetts is over 80%. There are places that have incredibly high vaccine rates. There are places that have crazy low vaccine rates, too. This is not a failure. It's not an unmitigated success, but it's not a failure.
1: I would agree. And... uh... The vaccine rolled out this time last year, uh, bringing in the new year with an all-hands-on-deck push to get over 80% vaccinated, U.S. citizens vaccinated. And that's the estimated amount for herd immunity. Somewhere between 80% and 90% is what's estimated to achieve that. And I will point out that here in King County, think Seattle, we're at somewhere around 80 or 90%, uh, I think even above that at this point. That was the push right out of the gate. This was in December of the last year. They started rolling it out to medical workers and a handful of other folks. And then it really started to get going early in the year. The Republicans who pushed the anti-vax messaging backpedaled and they gave tepid encouragement for U.S. citizens to get vaccinated. As they all, Trump included, immediately got theirs. So... They'd peddled this this narrative of, oh, the virus isn't that bad. And, well, maybe, maybe it kind of is a little bit bad. But if it is a little bit bad, you know, and all this other nonsense and this, this back and forth of, of the political football for what is really the spectacle of American theater politics. That at the point where it's time to have a vaccine that really is in a record-breaking time of development, literally less than a year that this vaccine started, and started research and started rolling out a vaccine, that we had what was basically the miracle cure to this tremendous problem of ours, ending with this backpedaling from the people who were s- so opposed to it, saying, oh, but, you know, maybe you should, I guess, get a vaccine, maybe. The genie is already out of the bottle, and no no amount of backpedaling that they can do, I think, at this point, is going to undo the damage that has already been done in the zeitgeist for a huge segment of the population. Mm -hmm. The Republican Party is now on board with the vaccine as a whole, with few exceptions here and there, but it doesn't matter. As you were just pointing out, Trump himself is getting booed by his own fanatics for saying that he got the booster shot. It's not even for a good material reason that is based in ideology or facts or anything like that. It's simply whatever you say, I'm going to say the opposite. That's how we're going to keep the theater going. Did you come across the, the vaccination
0: statement from Biden or, you know, the official statement out of the White House? Which one? This is uh, from about a month ago, on November 4th, or a month and a half ago now. Uh, it's, it just, I'll just read the beginning of it. For our country, the choice is simple. Get more people vaccinated or prolong this pandemic and its impact on our country. The virus will not go away by itself, or because we wish it away. We have to act. Vaccination is the single best pathway out of this pandemic. And while I would have much preferred that requirements not become necessary... Too many people remain unvaccinated for us to get out of this pandemic for good. So I instituted requirements, and they are working. They protect our workers and have helped us reduce the number of unvaccinated Americans over the age of 12 from approximately 100 million in late July when I began requirements to just about 60 million today. Vaccination requirements are good for the economy. They not only increase vaccination rates, but also help send people back to work. As many as 5 million American workers. They make our economy more resilient in the face of COVID and keep our businesses open. That way he can be hated by the left and the right. He's basically saying that you had your chance to get it on your own accord. And because you've been fucking around for so long, I had to make it a rule. (laughs) (laughs) It's like he's speaking to a petulant child. This is the kind of thing that a kindergarten teacher is saying to uh, to a bunch of kids. <laughs> Nobody can sit in their seats when I ask them to, so I have to make rules about this now. Now there's going to be consequences. <laughs> it's truly I, incredible. I actually really like that statement. That's one of the best statements about vaccine mandates. You're wrecking it for
1: the rest of us. That's really what the problem is here. There's a much more concise sentence that describes what's happening here. This is why we can't have nice things.
0: Largely because of this American sense of entitlement that we have. Like this particular American brand of the idea of freedom is so staunchly libertarian in its essence. It is everybody out for themselves. There is no consideration for how my actions affect others.
1: That's the way we interpret freedoms in this country. Their idea of freedom isn't even a, a well-reasoned understanding uh, understanding of individuality or... No, it's a, it's a petulant understanding. It's a petulant understanding to the degree of, should they be reading Lord of the Flies, they would say, that's exactly what we're talking about, baby. And that book itself is totally fabricated. It's
0: a, it's a Hobbesian nonsense fiction. We we could probably talk about that more, but I don't I don't want to get distracted too terribly much. Not at all.
1: We should put a pin in it to remember
0: to talk about Hobbes later. There have been actual shipwrecks that have had that have involved children being stranded on desert islands. They did not turn into Lord of the Flies. Typically, the opposite. It is always the opposite. Every time a group of people get stranded on an island, these are recorded instances. They can be looked up. They can be read about, and then we can see that this fiction of Lord of the Flies is very far from what typically happens in reality. Of course, you could have a shipwreck and a bunch of boys, and they're all sociopaths, and then they all act that way and try to murder each other. Absolutely, that could totally happen. But the story that 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 book tells of a group of kids that as soon as they are released from the constraints of society devolve immediately into some sort of savage form of humanity is entirely made up it is more about the author than
1: it is about people and yet this hobbesian fiction or this narrative about the essence of the essential nature of humanity or is really an inspiration for this attitude well, with all the necessary funding and supply available in the U.S., while much of the rest of the world was and still is desperately in need, there is only a little more than 61% fully vaccinated in the U.S. at the time of this podcast, with a little over 73% who received one dose. Now, I would point out, that's not bad, but it's not great, considering we got the silver bullet, the fucking miracle cure in miracle yeah. time. Not just one, though. We have more than half a dozen silver bullets. <laughs> yeah.
0: All over the world, different companies have come. The Russian vaccine works. The Sputnik vaccine works. Fully funded
1: works. for free at your fucking grocery store, in I and know. out, five minutes. I know. There And there's no excuse. There's no excuse of, of money, lack of convenience. There's no excuse at all in the United States.
0: Here, here's a real-world example from where I live in Bernalillo County, where we're, we're beating the national numbers as well. I think we have, we have something like 80% of the population has received at least one dose, something along those lines. I'm going to get that actual number. 75% have received one dose. We, we were early on leaders in New Mexico for vaccination rates, and we've managed to slip in recent months. So the real-world example is that I, I have an acquaintance who tested positive for COVID, okay? For one, the stigma of testing positive for COVID should not exist. This person did everything that they should do. Took all three doses of the vaccine, practices social distancing, takes precautions about gathering in groups. It still happened. It probably happened while at work. That's the most likely scenario. There was an outdoor gathering that this person attended a week later before knowing about the positive covid status because this particular peer group is all fully vaccinated and taking their own precautions there has not been a single case of covid transmitted to this group of people not one nobody <laughs> yeah. from this group of people has tested positive they've all they all very dutifully went and got tested a few days later nobody is positive Because, yeah, you can get a breakthrough infection. It probably won't be nearly as severe as it could have been had you not been vaccinated. That's one thing. That's just about the individual. What you're doing for everybody else by being a vaccinated person, you are not spreading virus nearly to the same degree that you would if you were unvaccinated and sick. Yeah. Then, with this much smaller amount of virus being spread about this group of people who are also triple vaccinated, nobody managed to get ill. That's what we're doing when we get vaccinated we're trying to make that be the normal situation if people thought of that as the normal situation it would be great this this whole thing would just it would just sort of drift away exactly like Trump described back in April of, of 2020 <laughs> when he said it'll be like a dream it'll be like it never happened <laughs>
1: even more consequential about this as you're pointing out all these precautions and the participation of everybody contributes in so many different ways not only in the transmissibility and not only in terms of the outcome should you catch it but also for the potential for the virus with limited supply in the rest of the world and vaccine hesitant populations in the u.s fucking hate that phrase vaccine hesitant by the way i know it's. I feel like it's such a fucking euphemism. I, I, I don't like it either, but
0: I actually know somebody personally who that describes fairly well. This is not somebody who doesn't believe that COVID is real, not somebody who thinks that there's microchips in it or nanobots or some Bill Gates
1: technology.
0: 5G, which I'm paying for, by the way. This is not somebody who gives any of those fringe ideas any credence at all. At the same time, this person is seems to be legitimately freaked out by the news stories about myocarditis. That is the thing that really freaks this person out. For some reason, being on a ventilator
1: doesn't. That's a failure of, of an understanding of statistics. And it's a failure of communication on the part of a lot of groups and people who are working to get this message out. You know, I,
0: I, I would agree with that in cases where I didn't know better, but I have personally worked on this person pretty hard <laughs> and, and tried to perform a vaccine-hesitant really? exorcism, and it has not worked.
1: Huh. Did you try holy water?
0: Yeah. Or just a vaccine. Just splash it
1: <laughs>
0: <up>. <laughs> Something else about the, since everybody's flipping out about the Omicron variant, is that if we had just instituted a pause on patent protections, say six or eight months ago, and allowed nations in the uh, the southern part of Africa to produce their own vaccines, specifically South Africa, where the Omicron virus surfaced, we would not be in this situation. I think that's fucked. Yes. <laughs> I, I think that people should be absolutely outraged that because we allowed a bunch of Billion dollar a year pharmaceutical companies to continue raking in profits from government subsidies because somebody pays for the vaccine. You show up at your Walgreens or at your grocery
1: store and you get it for free, it is getting paid for by tax dollars. And on top of that, these other countries could be manufacturing this on their own if it weren't for these patent protections. But for the patent protections.
0: Because our government decided that they would rather make sure that these companies can continue capitalizing on all of this extra profit or at least all of this extra revenue rather than temporarily suspending patent protections or coming up with another workaround
1: to allow these other nations to produce their own vaccines. It's the same government that roped these companies into developing these vaccines at the rate that they did. By promising them guaranteed payment ahead of time. Not just once it rolled out, but whether or not they successfully developed the the technology. Right, they were getting money regardless. Yeah, The, the government could have put whatever fucking terms they wanted as far as that's concerned. Because it wasn't just that they were making a little request and giving some payment. They were giving an enormous handout to these companies in terms of how much money they're raking in guaranteed rain or shine so
0: because i believe in a participatory sort of government i don't believe in a, a silent citizenry that simply bitches about things and doesn't do anything about it if you want to blame anybody talk to your goddamn representatives tell them you're pissed Tell them that you would rather that vaccines get produced worldwide and we can prevent the next Greek letter from getting turning into a variant rather than the pharmaceutical companies continuing to rake in profits.
1: This is not how I wanted to learn the Greek alphabet. (laughs) I've I've seen that meme. I already knew the
0: Greek alphabet. (laughs) So yeah, like by way of a little bit of backstory, like I don't talk about education much, but I, uh, I have a bit, I have a, a a small bit of classics background because of a, of a degree in archaeology.
2: I haven't <laughs> talked about archaeology
0: on this podcast. We will do it though, because I want to talk about some other fun things other than things that just make me angry.
1: I want to talk in some future episodes about. Uh, Graber's new book that came out posthumously. Sure. We don't have to talk about it now, but Absolutely. I, that's
0: something that we're going to talk about. You're talking about David cover. Graeber, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no that's coming up.
0: That's totally coming up. We're going to do a book report episode. Oh yeah. Actually, this is uh this is entirely independent. We have not talked about this previously together. <laughs> we both spontaneously had an interest in the same ideas for an episode. So Holy
1: shit. Wow. That is definitely going to happen. Great minds and
0: all that. We might, we might fast-track that one. I'm reading it now, by the way. This this, this last particular uh, point that you have in your notes, I'm just going to read it. And it's terrible that more people have died from COVID in 2021 than they did in 2020. You know, think about that. This is a year where we've had a vaccine. We've had many vaccines
1: available to us. And we had a whole year of, well, almost a whole year of practice Almost a whole with year. With the fucking pandemic. Yeah. This is, a,
0: this is a terrible thing to even think about. It's also a reality that we have to accept. This is where we are. This is the world that we are dealing with. We can bitch about it as much as we want, but this is the world that we're dealing with. So, Jules, the next thing you wanted to talk about was strikes and labor shortage.
1: Shortage in quotation marks.
0: Yeah, shortage in quotation marks. Is there actually a shortage? It turns out that a lot of the resignations and the labor shortage has been described can just be attributed to burnout. There's an article by Megan Linhart in Fortune from November 19, 2021, where she re- she outlines the the situation that we're seeing in the labor market and the describes the causes of some of the resignations that or she describes the causes of many of the resignations that we're seeing. This Great Resignation, or Great Reshuffle as some call it, isn't losing steam. About 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in September, a record high since the Bureau of Labor Statistics started recording this metric. The number of LinkedIn users who have changed jobs this year was 50% more than in 2020, according to the company, up nearly 30% from pre-pandemic levels in 2019. Some of the people quitting are seeking out new opportunities in different fast-growing sectors, but many are moving within their industry to find a better opportunity. So this resignation, again, I feel like I need to keep saying this. This isn't people just quitting and living off of whatever savings or, you know, are getting laid off and living off of unemployment. They are resigning and changing jobs. That's what's going on. Perhaps
1: we might even categorize some of it as displacement. It can be displacement.
0: I mean, if an industry shrinks, then yes, they are displaced. Her question is, what's causing so many to walk out the door? Here's a look at some of the biggest factors driving the sky-high quit levels. It turns out that a big part of everybody resigning is the fact that they are absolutely burnt out. This year, several major companies such as Nike, LinkedIn, Bumble, and Hootsuite gave their employees paid week-long breaks to recharge and relieve burnout symptoms. But that isn't happening everywhere, so some employees are taking their own mental health breaks in the form of a resignation. My fiance is one of those people. Huzzah! Yeah, she, she quit a job, took off six weeks, and started another job. Nearly 9 out of 10 U.S. employees report they've experienced occupational burnout over the past year, according to a recent survey of 1,000 full-time employees by Vizier, which specializes in employee analytics and workforce planning. More than a quarter, 27%, said they experience burnout all the time. That is
1: all (laughs) of the times. When you say that every day is worse than the previous day, Is today the worst day of your life? Yeah. And for the people who are resigning, they might be saying that.
0: (laughs) Women and black workers also tend to carry more burdens outside of work and are more prone to exhaustion and burnout, according to the 2021 Workplace Culture Report from the Society for Human Resource Management, a professional human resources membership association. About 76% of black workers say they leave work feeling exhausted, compared to 54% of white workers. Similarly, 64% of women report exhaustion, compared to 54% of men. This high level of burnout is not only contributing to quits, but it could be leading to a greater lag time between when an employee leaves one job and finds a new one. In the case of my example, it was six weeks Everyone's been affected by the pandemic, mental health challenges, anxiety, mood disorders, depression associated with the pandemic. I would not be surprised if they were playing a really meaningful role, says Jason Furman, an economist and professor at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Because employees have more job choice, there's a greater premium placed by workers on appreciation, and many times they're seeking that in the form of
1: compensation. Imagine. No fucking way. Imagine people are seeking out better compensation. I thought that they were working for the morality of work itself.
0: I thought that they were doing it for the good of society because we all need to get this economy going and everybody knows that if we don't all work, then CEOs and other multimillionaires can't make more money. Did these people not have a Protestant ethic? I think they just don't have a conscience. Because it turns out they're just <laughs> out for themselves. They're all
1: <laughs> freelance operators here.
0: Some kind of entrepreneurs, if you will. I mean, it's almost as if a, a huge chunk of our society has no fucking idea what motivates the rest of it. <laughs> the, the, the problem here isn't in this explanation. You know, this article is great and we'll include it in the show notes. The problem is that there's a wealthy slice of society that have absolutely convinced themselves that everyone else is just lazy and doesn't want to work. I I really think that they they are onto something in part. I think they might be right around, uh, I think they might be right about the not wanting to work part because who would, considering what the last couple of years has looked like? Yeah, most people's jobs in the last two years have been terrible. They've either been inconsistent because of lockdowns, and so they've been out of work for time periods, or they've been in this sort of essential worker category. This is what we call people who we desperately need, but don't want to compensate adequately.
1: Yeah, I, I can attest to this. I have been a mechanic at a bicycle shop the whole fucking time. And the burnout is real. Like a grocery store. Yeah. Or a chicken
0: processing plant. Obviously, a chicken processing plant is not a a high traffic environment for the public. I don't want to highly traffic (laughs) a chicken processing plant. (laughs) (laughs) But the point still stands. These jobs are absolutely necessary for the rest of us to live our lives. And yet... We're treating all of these employees like they are absolutely expendable every single step of the way because the class of people who run these companies thinks of them as expendable. Everyone in these groups has been fed just spoonful after spoonful of shit for the last two years. Yes, we've all been fed shit. It's been terrible for pretty much everybody, except that shit hasn't been equally distributed. It's like the William Gibson quote about the future. You know, the future is here, but it's not equally distributed. <laughs> like, <laughs> in, in this case, the shit is here, but it is also not equally distributed. In, in comparison to to uh, Gibson's quote, it is in, it has an inverse relationship. Basically, the future is distributed to the people most who get the least amount of shit.
1: <laughs>
0: Some people got a lot more than their share. That just makes me wonder who can be sincerely surprised that people are quitting their jobs? Of course they're quitting their jobs. Of course they're leaving these restaurant jobs and these service industry jobs where they were making minimum wage or sometimes less if they're a server and looking for a better opportunity. Of course they're doing that. Who would be surprised? What have they been doing for the past two years? I know from my own experience that every restaurant that I have gone to has gone to absolute hell, with the exception of a couple. And that tells me not that, oh my God, this restaurant, is like all of a sudden it's just horrible. Oh, I can't believe how bad it's gotten. No, that tells me that they were treating their workers terribly. They all left. Quality has gone through the floor, and they can't find anybody to take those jobs because they're terrible employers. That's what it tells me. The ones, the, the, the few restaurants that have high quality, I'm seeing those a little bit differently. I'm telling myself that maybe they treat their people a little bit better. Maybe they're a little bit happier with their jobs. There really is kind of a, like a social Darwinism that goes on here in terms of the businesses that are going to succeed and the ones that are going to fail, at least in terms of restaurants and probably hospitality at large. The places that treat their workers better are going to make it through this and
1: be stronger on the other end. Those who do not rely on exploiting their workers to such a degree that if they have to pay them a decent wage, they go under, don't have a business model that's functional. Those businesses are going to go away.
0: That's a reality. They might be nice people. To run those businesses but they can't keep their workers for a reason either because they the business itself just doesn't have enough leg d- does they don't have enough legs under them to be able to run and it was a bad idea in the first place or the margins were just too slim and they couldn't afford to pay their employees any better they might be nice people they just couldn't afford it it's a bad business it's not a crime that it goes under but the other places that where we have owners that are just raking in profit at the expense of their employees because they haven't, in, they, as they've increased their profit, they have not co- compensated their employees adequately. Those places, they just deserve to go under.
1: Absolutely.
0: We have too many restaurants anyway. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason why the margins are so slim and the competition so high. It's because everybody opens a restaurant. There's too many restaurants. Yeah, we probably have enough. <laughs> don't open any more restaurants. If there is any aspiring restaurateurs in this audience right now, don't open a restaurant unless you have a really good angle. Unless you can do something so much better than everybody else in your area, don't open a restaurant. Do something else. If, you, if you're just dying to open a business... Make sure that the business you you plan on opening is able to do something better than anybody else
1: in your area. For example, if your pizza is world famous, then you could- Wait, hold on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, what the hell is that from? Somebody covered that recently in some sitcom in the last four years about pizza competitions. I think it was Rick and Morty.
1: It could be, but honestly, it's it's a recycled bit from every other <laughs> it, it, fucking hack it, comedian. It, it, it was it was Rick and Morty. Where, was it? Where, yeah.
0: Yeah, it was.
2: <laughs> is he going to die? Don't worry, Dr. Glipglop is the best in the galaxy. Hello, I'm Dr. Glipglop. Oh my God, oh my God. Oh!
0: What? Every hospital claims to have the best doctor in the (coughs) galaxy.
2: It's like those pizza places that claim to have the best pizza in the world. What do you think, they have pizza contests? Have you ever been to a pizza contest? Go in the waiting room, Dad. Fine.
1: There's an area in downtown Seattle where I live called Belltown. I lived a handful of streets away through the majority of this year and and, uh, all of the... 2020 portion of the pandemic in my previous department, every single night in that particular segment of Belltown, everybody would start at I mean, on cue at 8 p.m. every single night.
0: Was it like hospital shift change or something?
1: Uh, no, uh it was it started at the beginning of the pandemic and it just never stopped in that particular area of Belltown. And it was pots and pans, somebody had a conch shell, I think bringing it back to Piggy and Lord of the Flies. But for real, there was somebody who blew this conch shell type horn. It was every single night, 8 p.m., wouldn't skip a beat. It did not end right up until the day that I moved out and moved to my current apartment. But the point that I'm getting at is it was really remarkable that this sustained and there was this sort of, to bring it back again, spectacle of celebrating the worker And yet it didn't really translate into meaning. And when it did, it dried up the second that it got way worse because the novelty fucking wore off.
0: If anybody listening is one of those people that was out there banging pots and pans and then doesn't do anything once the emergency pay dries up for those same workers, just fuck off. Don't listen to us. Like, yeah just get the fuck out of here. We don't want you. Like, that's not, that's not who we're talking to at all. If you're one of those people. Yeah. Like if if you want to repent and say like, yeah, I was one of those people and like, I I've seen the error of my ways. I saw that I was, I was just contributing to a hollow gesture that, that resulted in no chance whatsoever. Cool. Stick around. But if you're somebody who is offended by, by what I just said, absolutely. Just get the fuck out of here. I guess. You can fuck directly <laughs> off. <laughs> this all just feeds into this same narrative. You know, like we wanna we wanna support the we wanna support everybody until it's actually cost us something. Until we actually like feel some kind of a of of a cost in our own life. Because if there's the same people that are complaining that they don't have the right ice cream in the store anymore, or they're <laughs> out of eggs or something. Do you have any idea what we've all been living through? You're going to complain about the eggs? You're going to complain that there, you know, there's no frozen berries anymore? I don't have much more than just contempt. It's fucking visceral for me. That is the most superficial, obviously disingenuous concern for another person's well-being. Somebody who embodies those attributes, for me they rank lower than somebody is just like all in full on MAGA for Trump. That is worse for me because they think that they are just living their lives in some sort of like essence of social good.
1: But at the same time, they're probably doing the most damage. There are a number of quotes and I feel like it's almost trite to bring up, but nevertheless, it's what's on my mind. There's a quote that I think of that articulates this disingenuous support as being worse than the overt opposition from dr martin luther king jr he's describing in a letter i forget to whom at the moment it's not just a letter it's the letter the letter well the the part that i'm thinking of is a couple of sentences describing something along the lines of the well-meaning liberal is nearly worse than the overt racist with a hood and kkk support because they do more damage through their hollow support
0: i must make two honest confessions to you my christian and jewish brothers first i must confess that over the past few years i have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate I have almost reached a regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of good will is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice, and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace, in which the Negro passively accepted his unjust plight, to a substantive and positive peace in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open, where it can be seen and dealt with. Like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up, but must be opened with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed with all the tension its exposure creates, to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. In your statement you assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. But is this a logical assertion? Isn't this like condemning a robbed man because his possession of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? Isn't this like condemning Socrates because his unswerving commitment to truth and his philosophical inquiries precipitated the act by the misguided populace in which they made him drink hemlock? Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never-ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? We must come to see that, as the federal courts have consistently affirmed, it is wrong to urge an individual to cease his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because the quest may precipitate violence. Society must protect the robbed and punish the robber. I had also hoped that the white moderate would reject the myth concerning time in relation to the struggle for freedom. I have just received a letter from a white brother in Texas. He writes All Christians know that the colored people rose. Oh man, this one's a hard one to read. It's it's not the words, it's the content He writes that all Christians know That the colored people will receive Equal rights eventually But it is possible that you are In too great a religious hurry It has taken Christianity Almost 2,000 years to accomplish What it has The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time, from the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God, and without this hard work time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy and transform our pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. I think it's a good stopping point yeah, for this. Yeah, I, I would
1: agree. I'm roughly oh, halfway sh- through his letter. Shit. Everybody's still listening, has a pretty good idea of uh, <laughs> what we're all about now. There's no coming back from this. We've crossed the Rubicon. No. Yeah. What did we say at this point?
2: Happy I'm gonna Christmas go with and a Merry probably. New Year.
1: <laughs> I, I'm getting an aluminum pole tomorrow.
0: <laughs> I I sincerely wish for everybody who's listening... I sincerely wish that your experience of 2022 will be better than your experience of 2021. I really hope for all of us, for all of our sakes, that we will resolve some of these things that have been pestering us for the past couple of years. But as the almost eternal cynic that I am, I really doubt it. I can't help it. I I don't see good things happening. Even though I have cynicism regarding my expectations, I really do have hope I think that, that things will get better.
1: One of the most fundamental features of being a human is the capacity for hope. My favorite holiday of the year, although I think it's rarely described as a holiday, but I sincerely mean this: my favorite holiday is New Year's Day. It is full of merriment, drunkenness, debauchery, and a kiss at midnight. But. It represents, more than any other holiday, to me, the thing that I am most excited about. The idea of renewal. The the phoenix, the rebirth, and the abandonment of those things that have plagued us, whatever they might be. More than anything else, whether we do it or not, the hope of a new possibility. The hope of a new future. That's the year that we get all those gym memberships and everything else and we decide to go on diets. And while they may be aspirational, (laughs) it's that moment when the ball is dropping. That we have that feeling, that sincere feeling that no matter how bad it has been, maybe that year or a whole life or whatever it is. In that moment, we have that feeling that there really is a chance that we can start over. That is absolutely why it is my favorite holiday. In part, it means putting the previous year before the firing squad. (laughs) It does. (laughs) Because
0: we have to kill that motherfucker to have the new thing. (laughs) As as we're starting to wrap up here, Jules, do you have any podcast resolutions? (laughs) I want to say
1: extraordinary fewer times. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. W- w- both of us are pinky swearing right now on camera that we will <laughs> try to do better. <laughs> we will simultaneously work to include, uh, like, what do you mean? Parenthetics, as well as, <laughs> um, I don't know, uh, like this is um, well as well as improving our editing skills and acquiring even Now how would we acquire such we equipment have. Sean? <laughs> I can tell you if you want if you all want to support this podcast and you want to see this thing improve and you think that what we're working on has any kind of value whatsoever you can support us on Patreon If you can't afford to support us on Patreon, then follow us on social media, share our podcast on social media with your friends, spread the word around. We would really like to grow this thing. We would really like to make this thing better. We would like to turn this into something of a community where we're interacting with people. Comment to us. Write to us on Twitter, write the to The reviews us, really are a big deal. On, on Apple Podcasts. Apple
1: Podcasts and, and, and whatever platform you use. Seriously. I use Spotify myself.
0: It, it, it doesn't even matter what platform you use. Uh, if you want to go to Podchaser and leave a review, leave a review there. We will see it. <laughs> we are We're omnipresent. Everywhere. So, <laughs> leave a review. Leave a review... Share it on Twitter and tag us. Perfect. Whatever. If you hate it, leave a review anyway. I'd love to hear it. What do you hate about it? I would like to know. I'm curious. Maybe you're just an asshole. Maybe you have sincere criticism that can really help us. I want to hear it all. That's my wish for the new year. Keep in touch.
1: Thank you for listening to
0: another episode of Wet Wired. We truly appreciate all the support and feedback that we've received so far. It means everything to us. If you want to support the show and help us stay ad-free and independent, go to patreon.com forward slash wetwired. You can also support us by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast on social.
2: The kind of politics we have now where the left is represented by this kind of Obama-Macron-style centrism, where you're both for the market and for bureaucracy at the same time. You know, it's kind of horrible, right? The only possible appeal of that kind of politics is, well, at least they're not Nazis, right? So, so what they want is the left to be this kind of mishmash of bureaucratic market centrism and the right to be outright fascist. To set the ball rolling in an actual left direction will make that centrism look like utterly unappealing. In France, sometimes they talk about the extreme center, and I think that's a fitting phrase. It strikes me that what's called the moderates are the most immoderate people possible. And the reason why they're so uncompromising, I think, is because they realize they don't have a lot of positive arguments. They're not really for anything. And somebody like Obama, the reason he worked was because He looked like the kind of guy who would have a vision. He acted like a visionary, he had the intonation, he had the way of standing and looking into the distance like he really believed in something. And it shows you something about just how much visionary politics has been killed. It didn't even seem to occur to people to ask what his vision actually was, right? Because it turns out, insofar as he had a vision, his vision was not to have a vision. You know, he believed in pragmatism and compromise and so forth. And that's what the center has been reduced to. It's become this pure set of performative symbols. And at the same time, you get to feel morally superior, which is ultimately what centrism, what liberal centrism is all about, is the ability to feel feel better than other people. So there is a kind of a symbiosis whereby the right wing pretend to be stupid, like George Bush II sort of perfected this, like I'll act like a yokel. All of the liberals will make fun of me as an idiot. Everybody who resents the sort of cultural elite for having monopolized all the good jobs will look at them sneering at me and say, yeah, I bet those guys feel the same way about me as they feel about Bush. I'll vote for Bush. Ha ha ha, stick it to him, right? You know, that shtick, Trump is just doing a more extreme version of the same thing Johnson's doing the same thing. You know, you act like an idiot, the people who are um, sort of educated elite make fun of you and it works. Now, who's really the idiot, right? People keep falling for the same stupid trick over and over and over again. There's a symbiotic relationship between these centrists who are just sort of sneering elitists and these guys who are the scam artists who pretend to be yokels, who pretend to be idiots, who pretend to be fascists. They're not even real fascists, they're kind of phony fascists. They are trying to set up a situation where those are the only two viable political choices because they both feed off and complement one another.